So welcome everybody to episode 12 of the White Shark Interest Group podcast. We are Facebook's largest White Shark specific group, now totaling well over 49,000 members and well on our way to 50,000. So if you're not a member already and you're listening to this podcast, then please head over to Facebook and search the White Shark Interest Group. Hit the join button, tell us that you've heard the podcast and you want to join the group and get involved. We have discussions, debates. We've got the pictures and videos that a lot of people come for, and you're certainly going to learn something. Now, I know a lot of people aren't on Facebook, so if you're not on Facebook, that's fine. Please just subscribe to the podcast and share them around. You can do your piece for shark conservation through education by spreading this podcast or spreading the Facebook group or the Instagram group at white shark underscore interest group. And just share the education and the debate around because you will be contributing to conservation and protection of white sharks. So on today's show, on episode 12 here, by much request, we have... Have Melissa joining us again today. Good morning, everyone. And we have Drew back on the podcast again. Or good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're listening. <laughs> Indeed. The topic today and why we really want to get Drew's perspective on this, and we'll explain why as we go into this podcast, is we want to start with the topic of dolphins and sharks and the relationship between them, specifically a question or rather a topic that comes up quite a lot. And I'm just going to throw this straight out is this notion that dolphins will protect people from shark attacks and we hear these stories that someone was swimming in an area and they say suddenly a shark disappeared because all the dolphins came around and formed a circle and protected me and jumped through hoops and you know sent the shark nasty shark away and, and I just want to know Drew we'll get into your background slightly and why you're qualified to maybe contribute to this but is there any truth to that at all? Is that something that actually happens to your best of your knowledge? To the best of my knowledge, I, w- I would have to lean toward no. I can't say a flat out no because there's so much information that we don't know. I always lean towards no. And I think that the number one reason that people think that is a typical anthropomorphization of uh, behaviors. We always think about in relation to people. But in my experience, never been the case. And from everything that I've read, I don't really think that it's one species helping out another, uh, especially from any aspect of altruism or whatever you might want to term it. There are a lot of incidents where people have believed so. But I think if you cut down to the nuts and bolts, you're going to see that the dolphins are protecting themselves and protecting their pod, whether or not humans are in the water. I think the same thing would happen regardless. I see. Okay. And that's from a, a strictly scientific view. I mean, again, Again, we uh, we tend to over dramatize situation that's we that we've been into. If you were to talk about sharks and dolphins interactions when people aren't there, I think you'd find pretty much the same thing occurs. Before we get into some of the detail of that, and can I just talk about what your experience is, and for the listeners, what what's your background in this field and the lines of work that you're involved in? From the sharks' perspective, I've been you know studying sharks. Sharks were my first love. Started looking into sharks when I was you know just a toddler. First non-picture book I ever read was Sharks. And it was more than just a passing interest. This was something that I was obsessed with from as a kid. Uh, I'd looked at everything that I could possibly find with, with regard to, to sharks. And by the time I was about 10 or 11, I pretty much exhausted the typical libraries, the local libraries. I was already starting to go visit universities that my father worked at. Wow, okay. And I would go to their libraries and I'd start looking up papers. And that was my first foray into it. And then when I was in high school, I got to uh, dissect my first shark as a junior in high school. Wow. And then my senior year, because I was so involved with that, my professor, because she saw my passion for it, 
she actually ordered me a much larger shark. So my senior year, I actually did a full-on dissection of, a, of about a four-foot shark, and I was able to turn that into a presentation and a paper that I was had to produce that had to be very similar to a scientific paper. Wow. So most people are dissecting frogs in high school. You're dissecting a shark. Well, everybody in my class, except for me, was dissecting a fetal pig, and that's typical for most biology classes. Yeah. All right. But like I said, I, I made the request probably the first time I ever went, I ever approached one of my teachers about something like that and i said i said hey listen you know i know that they can get a hold of these sharks now for those listening i don't want to say i'm not a person who believes in killing sharks for science i've actually never killed any organism for any of my studies basically they always come to me either dead or or having washed up on shore or something like that Mm -hmm. sure i'm dead set against creating a market for those types of materials sure yeah yeah you're basically not a sampler (laughs) no and i i've worked for samplers and it's always been a very difficult thing for me one of my fellow graduate students was in in one of these things where you go and set up a net and i have to admit it it actually kind of bothered me a little bit because we went out we set the net and about a couple hours later we basically pulled the nets in and you take everything that's collected we had two small bull sharks in there wow. mm-hmm. and that kind of that and that kind of really you know frustrated me because it's like we, we could have just gotten the sharks counted them and then released them back out yeah we did it the lazy method which means you know a couple sharks had to die yeah so from an education point of view then where where did you go from there let's see so after high school uh, i tried college the first time i was down at the university of tampa back in the early 90s and that only worked out for about a year we ran out of funding once they decided not to renew my scholarship i was kind of left at a loss so then i transferred to penn state university which was a little bit cheaper yeah and then again i ran into problems where i was falling through the system and my problem was i decided to take the high level classes like ichthyology without taking the prerequisites Mm -hmm. right so i got myself into a little bit of trouble there then i took a long break and then i went back to school I got my bachelor's in marine biology, and then I go back and, and got my uh, master's degree in biology. I uh, specialized in physiology, biomechanics. Well, a lot of people in the group know you, and I first used to see your name popping up, know you as like the dolphin guy. <laughs> where, did, where does that come from? It was funny because I, I kind of got turned on to, on to them a little bit when I was at, at the University of Tampa because I started dating somebody. I wanted to study sharks and she wanted to study dolphins. And so we sort of, through getting to know each other, we sort of shared each other's interests. Mm-hmm. I sort of fell away from that again. And then when I came back for undergrad, I got hooked up with an organization here in, in Texas that uh, rescues uh, marine mammals. And I was like, why not? I've got the free time. You know, let's, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. And so I went and did their training program and got hooked on it. And then in less than a week, we got our first live animal rescue. Once I got my hands on, which was a melon-headed whale named Sandy, about nine-footer. And once I got my hands on it, it, it became addicting. I've been doing rescue rehab and re- rehabilitation for 14 years, 15, almost 15 years. Yeah, I've done hundreds of necropsies, uh, hundreds of recoveries, and quite a few you know, live animal rehabs. One that lasted for 13 straight months. Wow. Very rewarding. For those people who are wondering if I have any shark-related experience, I have been involved with multiple shark projects as well. Well, because I need, I need, I feel like I need to throw some street cred out there. So <laughs> I've actually done some neuroanatomy studies on that, and I worked with a fantastic uh, other scientist by the name of Andrew Martin Donnelly, who was my lab partner for uh, for like five years, and he was looking into the placoid scales on on a very fine scale level. And the water flow over the placoid scales and stuff. And I'm really hoping that he gets around to publishing that work because I would love to tell you guys something that you guys would just find absolutely amazing about about sharks that nobody really knows about. Oh, okay. Um, but I promised him that I wouldn't bring it up until he uh, he sees if he's going to take take that to publication. Interesting. Very interesting. How exciting! Yeah. When it comes to sharks and marine mammals, when you come to, to, to people who study those. There are some similarities. When I was in graduate school, 
people who study sharks and people who study dolphins are both looked down upon equally. And you wouldn't think that that would be the case. Really? Mm -hmm. But yes, they are there. We are basically excommunicated from the rest of the scientific community. And the reason it is because we're studying what is known as charismatic macrofauna or these, these really good looking large species. Mm -hmm. right. So all the people who are studying, you know, clams and oysters and, and polychemists and stuff like that, they have to compete with the same money as we do. And we have something a little bit more flashy to work with. I see. It's kind of like the, the guy who spends his whole life working on, you know, compact cars and stuff like that, competing with the guy who's got the, the Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. What is it about sort of dolphins particularly that, that got you, you know, got you turned on to that and got you so jazzed about working with dolphins? Some of the stuff that we just don't know. I mean, you would think that how long people have been studying dolphins, just like sharks to a, to a different degree, but there's still a lot of basic information that we don't know. They're still running breath hold tests on dolphins and stuff. It's done fairly ethically, but we don't know how long they hold their breath. We don't know how long they live. We've got not even baseline debt, debt on this stuff. I don't know the world dolphins very well. I'll be honest about that. I, I thought that's something that would have been a given by now, given that I see studies, you know, people in the in the sixties, you know, doing sort of dolphin intelligence experiments and so on, and studying dolphins. We don't even know that. Honestly, we don't. That's one of the things that I got into. Uh, actually, I found an, an interest in graduate school. I sort of fell into. Uh, I didn't major in it or anything like that, but I took three neuroscience classes because there's so much we don't know about the brain, but there's a lot we do. And to be honest with you some of the most cutting edge work is being done on large sea slugs. One of them is known as uh, Aplesia californica. And that study actually even won a Nobel Prize. But if you look at the way the brains are wired, it's fascinating because it's it's very logical in many aspects. And then once you get to the higher levels of brains, you know, the encephalization that happens in more recent species and stuff. It's, it really became fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. That's some of the information that we're learning. But since, since we're still working on Aplesia and, and other animals that have a simpler system, we, we're still working on that. So us imagining that we can get something that's directly evolved very differently than we have than we've been because uh if you look at humans our brains have elongated as far as mass goes but if you look at a marine mammal it's actually widened so it's a very different kind of setup mm. we have a lot of the same structures in there because it's formed differently we can't make a direct human to marine mammal equivalent yeah that's one of the things i've always found that again from school myself it's just one of them things as a child you just kind of get fed and you just accept as fact that well a dolphin's brain actually when you look at the size of the you know the animal it's, it's not you know it's quite similar to a human brain in terms of you know size and and then you know oh and they've done plenty of testing on intelligence of dolphins and, and they're actually extremely intelligent which is why it then follows through with that little nugget of information implanted in you that when people say oh yeah they they like to be around humans and you know and then they protect humans and they have empathy with humans where uh, that to me is where it's a natural progression to that but i start losing it at that point that how would we know that how do we know that dolphins are so intelligent that's the problem as far as intelligence goes intelligence first of all is a very bad term to use because we can't measure intelligence yes we have you know, an IQ test and that sort of thing. But that's based on already a, a human type category. So how do you give something else an IQ test? Mm. Uh, usually what we've used like to refer to it as cognition. Yes. Problem solving. 
that sort of thing. Uh, ability to recognize self is a big one. People are always telling me, you know, like it's smart because it recognizes itself in the mirror. But I'm saying then how is that any different than you say my cat looking at its reflection and not getting scared? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ways. It's very tricky. But I think one of the biggest problems, and, and I'm probably going to offend somebody by some people by saying this, but most of what it comes down to is human arrogance usually uh, causes a, a little bit of a, a bias in pretty much everything you do. Mm -hmm. They actually came up with in the 70s an encephalization quotient, I think is what it was called. And they said that basically you had to take a look at the size of the brain and then look at the surface area of the body. That would tell you basically how smart something is. Yeah, yeah. If you looked at the equation for how they did that, it basically was almost like it was trying to push, you know, marine mammals, some some mammals that have brains like 10 times larger than us. Mm. And it's trying to push them out of the intelligence because humans always want to have themselves on top. Yeah. I'm not saying that we don't deserve to be there, mm -hmm. but I think it's when you, when your whole goal is to push other organisms out, that shows a, an implicit bias that, that we can't ignore. Yes. Yeah. The whole study of dolphins and the way they're portrayed, I've, I think that really rings true. Drew, uh, that I've always found that it does, you know, it's compared to humans and against humans and still with us, you know, studying and, and looking down on them. And, and I don't think that's offensive to anyone. I think that's that's pretty much what human beings as a as a species, what we do. We tend to put ourselves top of everything. Of course, when you're in the water with a, with a white shark heading towards you, I think you might reassess that pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, that's one of the fascinations with the water. And, you know, when you see people wanting to get in the water with dolphins is because it is this sort of other mysterious world that is not... Not, it doesn't feel like where humans belong. And, and that's where people, I think, start getting obsessed with water. I mean, pretty much one of my earliest sort of experiences of looking at dolphins in a different light was uh, was that film in the 80s, The Big Blue? Yes, absolutely. Yes. The guy in that, basically, the whole film implies with that the, the guy, yeah, the free divers, basically implies that the guy is a, is essentially like shares his DNA with a dolphin is pretty much what the film is. Yeah. They take on this very sort of like mythical and, you know, and almost like spiritual sort of um, role sometimes yeah. uh, because it's a fascination with the ocean. And then we do that same thing with sharks, but of course sharks, are, sharks have sharp teeth, so we make them the bad guy and dolphins are the good guys, you know, in the ocean. And, and again, I wonder if that's where this whole idea of sharks protecting humans comes from because they're so, they're so much like us or so we're told from such an early age. Flipper. For me, it was Flipper. Flipper, right. of course. You know, of course. Um, yes, yeah. it was Flipper. And there was also a show before Flipper. I just can't remember the name of it right now. What, with a dolphin? Yes, with a dolphin. But Flipper was the big one for me. I mean, I thought Flipper was there to rescue me. I protect me. And yeah. <laughs> that's really how Flipper was portrayed. I mean, he, you know, would take down the bad guys in almost every episode. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> whether it be a shark or a human or a poacher, you know, yeah. it, it was Flipper. Flipper was the big thing. The, the way they made that scene, they always made it seem like the dolphins are ramming the sharks and ramming the sharks. Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize is the lower jaw that sticks out in front of the upper jaw on dolphins. It's directly connected to their pan bone, which is their jaw bone at the far back. They have to use that bone in order to receive sonar. Yeah. So I didn't understand why they always thought that, that they were going to ram stuff. Because I have to admit, being in the water, I've had I've been in the water with rough dolphins and 
with calm dolphins and happy dolphins and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Whenever, whenever I've had a dolphin get rough, they use their body to sort of shove things out of the way. I don't recall anybody ever being rammed by a dolphin. And that's, and again, that's 14 years. Mm. If I haven't seen it, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not common. Sure. That dolphin is the dolphin's name, Sandy, the one that's from overseas that keeps going after the tourists. They keep getting in the water thinking they can go play with her. And I, I think I remember the story. I'm, I, I sort of all blend together. So there's a place overseas, I think, in Europe where there's a dolphin, a resident dolphin, and the tourists like to get in the water with her. And she really isn't as friendly as they assume her to be. And I believe she's attacked a few tourists that have invaded her personal space. Um, that's one thing that I, I like to remind people about about dolphins, mm-hmm. and this is this has also has to do with how they relate to sharks. Is every time they're using their sonar, they're taking a sonogram of anything that they're clicking at, anything that they're using their echolocation at. And what people don't realize is that it doesn't just reflect off the hard tissues; it reflects off those soft tissues, which is why I call it a sonogram as opposed to echolocation. Mm. Mm-hmm. They are able to find out the different structures, and I still think that they can pick out weak spots on different other organisms. But which is why we always hear about them messing with the gills of a shark. In the case of a of a human's anatomy, I think they can see the soft spot on a on a male, right? Because it seems like quite frequently, when dolphins have gotten aggressive with human males they seem to aim for that particular spot below the belt Mm -hmm. and that's not surprising and to be honest with you some of the situations i've run into means seems like they they can even detect even more than that because we actually had a rule in in the stranding network that i was part of that if you're agitated you're not allowed to be in in the pool with the dolphins right Mm -hmm. because they can sense your heartbeat they can hear your heartbeat they know what you're feeling and if you're anxious that puts them on edge yeah i don't know how many other creatures that can do it because we have a pretty loud heartbeat because we have an air-filled chest cavity Mm -hmm. but i know that they they've been able to tell that and again that's that's from experience not I have not done a scientific study on it. Yeah. That, well, I mean, would that potentially be similar to the way, you know, that we know um, an orca can target uh, the liver on a white shark? Yes. I mean, how, how do they know that, you know? I, I certainly think that they can do that. And I also think there's a certain amount of experimentation involved. Amazingly, orcas don't seem to want to experiment with human beings, but they also don't encounter us in the water as frequently. No. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that's certainly possible. And I guess it's not a million miles away from, you know, that we have we have dogs that can pick up on, uh, when we talk about other animals, dogs that can pick up on, you know, people with that are about to maybe have a, an epileptic fit. Right. Oh, yeah. Or a stroke or something. Cancer. You know, cancer, yeah. And it, it kind of dumped these things. I don't know if there's science behind that, but it's certainly anecdotally, that's, that's kind of been seen many, many times times mm-hmm. it's funny that you mentioned that because there's there's been a long long held debate about cetaceans about whether or not they can smell and that's what i'm saying like even some of the basic information that we that we don't know about dolphins some people say they can some people say they can't i tend to lean more on the side that they can't because you know dolphins live in an opposite existence to us they don't freely breathe they they literally hold every single breath of their entire life yeah until they come to the surface. Um, so it doesn't make much sense. They're not getting a lot of air exchange in order to determine a scent. But I don't know. I'm, I'm sure somebody has looked into it, but I'm not sure if, if they've taken a really close look on their olfactory lobe of their brains and, and determined if they've got enough 
neural capacity or if that mm-hmm. that spot on their brain is actually degenerated. We've been studying dolphins for decades, have we not? What, what are we studying? What are we looking at in dolphins? Oh, yeah, longer than decades. What, so what are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, over well over 100 years. I mean, it's uh, it depends. You know, the, the, the depth of our study has certainly gotten much more, much deeper in recent years with technology that's allowed us to enter their habitat more frequently. They've been written about in the binomial nomenclature for you know at least 150 years, probably closer to two by now. But yeah, there's still a lot of basic questions we don't know, and and some of that has to do with our knowledge of neuroanatomy. It's actually it's gotten a lot better in recent years. If anybody listening is wants to look up a paper, look up a Dr. Lori Marino. She's fantastic with marine mammals and in the neuroscience field. She's got some some great papers on it, and I think she tends to be the most realistic. She doesn't just take in the scientific data. She also takes into account some observational study. Right. But there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. I mean, most people don't know that marine mammals like cetaceans do not have a gallbladder. And people sit there and go like, what? You know, they're, they're missing a whole organ from, like, you know, the, the mammalian body plan. Mm. And what it is, is they just, they just have a cystic duct, which is a little bit larger. So they still have something that works like a, like a gallbladder does. Dolphins don't have one. And and it's so funny because we used to make jokes with with some of our volunteers. And, you know, if we were doing a necropsy in order to keep things light, we'd use a little gallows humor. And we sit there and go like, you know, we'd we'd ask them to find the gallbladder. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds like a a much more educated version of uh, someone on a construction site asking them to go and get a long wait or something. Yeah. (laughs) So what do we know? What do we know, if anything, about any relationship between dolphins and sharks? One thing that we noticed is the way that the, the dolphin pods are set up. Dolphins have a dominant eye. They have like it's either a right eye or a left eye, and, and 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 if you've been around dolphins enough, you'll actually witness it. And what we found out was when they're when they're swimming together or even resting together as pods. And if anybody doesn't know, dolphins don't ever go to sleep completely. They only shut one hemisphere of their brain off at a time, so they're always half awake. That's like me when I'm working. Yeah, honestly, I think most of us can relate. Oh yeah. But what they'll do is they'll position themselves in a pod to where their dominant eye will look past the rest of the members of their pod and scan that area for either prey or predators. And so they sort of all position themselves around the pod, you know, sometimes mixing it up. But they are, they're always looking out for each other. There's really not a lot in the ocean outside of sharks that's that's going to take a run at a dolphin, sure. except for possibly other marine mammals. Yeah. So obviously they have a very, very strong relationship with sharks. What about other dolphins? Is that observed as well? Other dolphins you know, protecting themselves from other dolphins? Is it within a pod or? Oh, absolutely. We always think about sharks and stuff, but especially in recent years, we've the last like decade and a half or so, they've been doing a lot of study about it. And this is happening in the UK waters. Bottlenose dolphins, Atlantic bottlenose dolphins will kill smaller harbor porpoises. Right. And they've never been able to figure out why. Some people have some good guesses about why. You know, so the little harbor porpoises are having to protect themselves from the, uh, the bottlenose dolphins. So they kill them, but not to consume them, not for food. As far as we've seen, they've never been consumed. It's always just been, they basically just beat them up and, and kill them. And a lot of people are, are wondering what what kind of streak this is hmm. in the normal happy flipper dolphin. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of stuff like that. And then, then of course, we have the world's largest dolphin, which is the orca. All the different kinds of smaller species of, of uh, cetaceans have to protect themselves from the orca. To, to be careful, when I say orca, there's multiple different groups of orca. Like in the northern hemisphere, we have the residents, which are fish-eating, the transients, which are, are marine mammal-eating. Mm-hmm. And then you have the offshore, which are kind of like a mix. And down in the southern hemisphere, you've got like type A, B, C, which, which have their own different things. I'm not well-versed on the southern hemisphere 
gorgeous. But I know that there's a whole bunch of them that feed on sharks, uh, especially the uh, blunt-nosed six gills in Australian waters. Yeah, that's amazing. We've got that footage of orcas. We've, we have footage of orcas killing a mako shark. Now, it wasn't a particularly big mako shark. We've seen orcas take uh, mako sharks, blunt-nosed six gill sharks. Tiger sharks. Tiger sharks. Yeah, that's one I was, trying, I was just trying to think of. Yeah. Um, so we've seen them taking a number of different. And then I think the the rays that are that happen. I can't remember if it's off New Zealand. If I think it was off New Zealand, they, there's a whole pod there that specialize. And Dr. Ingrid Visser, who's discovered that pod that feeds directly on on certain kinds of. Uh, I, th- I think they're like the Southern Hemisphere's version of a um, cow nose ray. Mm-hmm. They will almost entirely subsist on them. So if they're killing those, possibly for their livers, is it possible that they somehow taught that to the two guys over in South Africa? So it's it's, it's kind of like I'm curious how this how they figured that out. Yeah, I would love to know that. And I didn't know if uh, Allison Cox, she, if she, if Doctor Cox had, had figured out if she had spoken about that at all because I have, I have yet to see that in the literature yet. Well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, Rob Lawrence pointed out that while those two orcas are always attributed to the like disappearance of sharks in False Bay, which we've talked about on other episodes, if you've not listened to those, please go check out that episode with, with Rob Lawrence particularly. But that has never actually been witnessed or seen in any False Bay area. Mm-hmm. It's always it's always well outside of the False Bay area uh, that where these you know sharks are being found with the, with the liver damage. But I don't believe that's ever actually been documented or researched to a point of certainly not to publishing a paper on it or anything that I'm aware of. Uh, but again, it's just one of these things that you, you see the headline of it and you just accept them as pure fact. Mm-hmm. The orcas are just taking livers from sharks and leaving the rest. It's like, is is that what's going on? I don't know. And I think the difference with the orca, say compared to, you know, what many people would see as a sort of common picture of a dolphin, is obviously there's a size difference, of course. But again, there are, it's always the intelligence attributed to, to an orca in terms of like hunting techniques. Uh, you know, we've seen great footage of them like knocking a seal off a sheet of ice and so on you know working coordinated oh yeah yeah. dolphins surely must use coordinated attack patterns and but we don't see them as big bad dolphins you know i've seen footage actually that was right off of my coast a couple years ago where multiple males were taking out a uh, calf Mm. the female was just going ballistic trying to break them up and it was like a pack of males were on the pup and a pack of males were on the female this is orcas or dolphins sorry dolphins right sometimes i wonder if orcas practice the same behavior i've never seen anything about that either but uh that shocked me why are people so willing across the world as part of that industry to jump in the water and hang on a dolphin oh yeah that's a question that's that's about people and then if there's one thing i know so little about that it's not worth mentioning is i I know very little about people. Okay. <laughs> I will say that the, the, the part about the males and the killing the calves and stuff like that, there's a reason for it. Yes. And I think people need to get past the idea that bottlenose dolphins, whether they be Atlantic or Pacific, these are not happy, fuzzy little little animals. No. They have a dark side. So one of the reasons that they're killing the pups is because they believe if they kill the calf, it'll bring the mother in estrus faster. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that should be more should be more receptive to mating. And they do it a lot of times. And actually, males will actually go into another pod, steal a female, and hold her captive until she's receptive to breeding. Yes. Wow. And then when she's pregnant, they sort of let her go and do her thing. So that's also one of the reasons you see a lot of genetic diversity in these pods, because two males from one pod will go steal a female and then bring it back to their pod. And so you see there's a very wide genetic spread. 
and they're pretty rough. I was going to say that it sounds pretty brutal. It but is. I'm doing exactly the same thing. I'm putting human attributes there, aren't I? Yes. You can you can obviously say that humans have done it. We can't lie to ourselves and say that no humans ever you know forced a woman to be receptive uh, in in the sexual system mm-hmm. without using the R word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have some relations to, and I think I think you'll see it in a lot of stuff. It's very limited. Now, I can't speak for every dolphin species out there, but as far as I know, we've never seen that sort of thing in orcas. We've seen males sort of leave their own pod to see if they can go hook up with a, another pod to spread their genetic diversity, but we don't see males from orcas going and stealing anybody or anything and stuff like that. And usually there's only one bull orca in an orca. But do you think that that media portrayal of dolphins, it is the happy little flipper, that people just don't want to know about what you might term the darker side? Yeah. yeah. We like to see dolphins as happy chappies swimming around, making a little clicking noise and, and like lassies saving people, you know? And is that again where the shark thing comes in? Let's see if we can destroy a few more happy little memories from people's childhoods. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> what most people don't realize is that male dolphins generally tend to use their penis as a way of exploring objects. Yeah, I know a few men that do that as well, though. Well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have any footage of that, and thank, thankfully, I'm sure, you find it, I'm sure you can find it on the internet. We actually had a male dolphin that we had in rehab. This was a, um, a rough tooth dolphin. And what he used to do is he used because they have a prehensile penis, which means can, they can actually use it to grab things. Wow. Mm-hmm. He would occasionally take a fish that we fed to him and pull it up into his genital slit and hide it for some reason. We don't have no idea why he did it, but it was his way of playing around and stuff like that. It had nothing to do with sexuals. For them, it's just another appendage yeah. in certain circumstances. But also for grabbing fish and grabbing. I've never, ever, this is fantastic. But if yeah. you want to talk about cognition, the, the ability to play or experiment with new things, like, you know, how do you define the word play? But a lot of this behavior can be considered play, which is one thing that we often consider with uh high levels of cognition. Why are things like that not common knowledge? I think I think most people want the lost over sea world look. Mm-hmm. Sure. And or the flipper look, you know, because I mean if, if a lot of people wanted to look at the at the dolphin stories we hear, like the dolphin winter, that's not a super happy story. No. If people knew the full details of it. Now it's not a horrific story, but what, what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, rehabilitation obviously, I think we've learned in recent years, is not the best situation for marine mammals. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into that debate because I think people would be bothered by the fact that I'm a little bit of a fence sitter. I also have firsthand reasons for for how I, I feel about it. Sometimes you just you're just rooting for the best possible ending, not a happy one. Going back to what we originally started with again, I just wonder where this myth, if you like, or this tale of dolphins protecting humans from sharks again comes down just to the stereotypical image we've got. Sharks are the media portrayed big bad guys. Dolphins are the media portrayed heroes, yep. you know, the flippers. Um, and does it just feed into that? But I was curious what you were saying straight off the bat that you were talking about. The chances are they're probably just protecting their own pod and so on. And it's actually not related to the humans. Is that, how does that work? What have we seen in terms of how they go about protecting you know, they're young and protecting their pod. They certainly don't do it every every shark. We have a lot of footage of dolphins and sharks being in the same area, which is another myth you probably need to dismiss, that if you see dolphins, there's no sharks around. That is the worst mistake that you can make. They are frequently feeding on a lot of the same things. Those of us who, who've spent a lot of time in the field have actually seen photos or witnessed dolphins and sharks actually feeding on the same school of fish. Mm-hmm. So nobody should ever assume that if you see dolphins, there's not sharks. Yeah, I've seen that with like uh, some bait ball footage before. You've got right. sharks and dolphins around. Not much, but you know, some. What I was saying is like, especially if there's a calf in the, the dolphin pod, you will normally see 
like the the adults that that are protecting usually it's uh, one of the matriarchs they will actually go and preemptively scare something else off if they think the calf might be in danger so it's for different reasons but you know how we've seen you know seal colonies they will go and, and follow a white shark around to make sure that you know see what it's doing and try to keep an eye on it and stuff hundred percent that's exactly what they do yeah and it's it's very similar with the same thing with dolphins it, it can be for to keep an eye on them or sometimes it can be for the purposes of being aggressive with it trying to get it to, to like just go away and hunt in elsewhere well you, you get these reports that someone said i was in the water and there was a shark around and then the dolphins turned up and swam away and sorted the shark out for me and got it away if you look at it from that angle like you just mentioned obviously the dolphins and probably the shark both know that the human are there but you know what if that's just a bystander mm-hmm. i've heard the same stories about how you know somebody was there but like oh this shark was coming right at me and this dolphin intervened you know i i wasn't there i don't know what happened yeah but when when a lot of people say sharks are coming towards them they just happen to be coming in their direction doesn't mean they're targeting them just like in the press every shark that you ever see is 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 lurking yes <laughs> or you know, trying to trying to kill somebody. But I, I think the fact that people are looking at it, well, hold on. I, I guess I should I should supplement this by saying this. We've seen some pretty remarkable things in nature. We've seen sperm whales that have adopted dolphins. There was one dolphin that was formed with like a scoliosis type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, a pod of, of sperm whales have taken it in and actually allowed it to live with them. And they would actually bring, you know, giant squid up to feed the dolphin with. Right. We can't discount everything. And I hate being that fence sitter all the time, but Mm -hmm. in in nature, everything's possible. Uh, And and if you ever make a rule, you'll find something probably the next day that'll break that rule. So I can't say every instance of dolphins being in the same place as sharks. And who knows? I mean, if if it's in their brain that they they were trying to help somebody. But I think we need to stop attributing things like that. Because when you get people to do that, it sort of lets people, you know, let their guard down. When we get this idea that dolphins are the good guys, again, you might not want to get into the whole debate around that whole industry with, you know, dolphin parks and so on. But with, with people so willing to get in the water and, they you know, they want to get that picture of them hanging on the back of a dolphin, what does that do to the dolphin, that whole sort of side of the industry? Is it is it really harmful to them? Uh, you mean captivity? The captivity and then placing them within that sort of tourist aspect of the captivity, specifically where you get all those dolphin parks where you can pay to go and get in the water with them and swim around, you know, like a lagoon area. Like Atlantis. As far as that, the, the impact on the dolphins, these aren't wild dolphins. They won't be in a swim with the mm-hmm. dolphin program if they're wild dolphins. Now, there are some places, I believe Shark Bay down in Australia was one of them, that usually they worked enough with dolphins that the dolphins would show up every day to be fed by people. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's still captivity. So depending on how you feel about captivity, that would probably be your answer. They're not living wildlife. And if they're not living wildlife, they're going to need uh, supplemented for their health then we've already seen that that if they if they can't swim like they normally swim you'll see a lot of uh physical deterioration i hear a lot of people say like oh you can tell he's depressed oh you can tell stuff like that you can't watch an 88 minute movie and think you can get in the head of a marine mammal sure. you can't even watch an 88 minute movie and, and get in the head of a shark so i don't really see how we can make a whole lot of judgments but i will say that when you mentioned this thing, it's like, why do we hold dolphins to a different level? Hmm. I think Rick O'Berry said it, and he was a former dolphin trainer who turned dolphin activist, uh, was it's that it's that smile. Yeah. They're just that cuddly thing. And they think that it's something they can pet and 
It's the truth, though. When I see the dolphin with its mouth open, all I'm seeing is those rows of teeth. You know, <laughs> I, I actually have a, a one of their teeth still stuck in my knuckle that I that I got about ten years. No way! You're just keeping it there now for for, <laughs> yeah. for parties, and you know, <laughs> honestly, it, it it would have taken it would have been more trouble to take it out. So, I mean, I've I've had a couple of injuries, and nothing was ever intentionally the dolphin's fault. When I got bitten, was we were we were uh, holding a dolphin because we were doing a, a procedure, a health procedure, to determine how how sick or how healthy the dolphin was and unfortunately the vet veterinarian who was controlling the front of the dolphin he lost his grip and so i moved in from behind him i sort of moved up to take his spot so i could so i could keep the dolphin safe because they thrash around they can really really hurt themselves so i moved up and then of course this dolphin that i spent 13 months with over 7200 hours with yeah ended up biting her tooth crack in my knuckle we uh <laughs> we, we kept joking about the they kept saying like they wanted to do surgery so they could pull the tooth out. And I was like, you know, I really don't want to lose my dexterity in my finger by having people just rooting around in there for fun. So I said, unless it becomes a problem, we'll just leave it in there. And I kind of always thought it was kind of fun to have a thing, but my knuckles never been the same. So. You don't want to lose the bragging right. You'd be one of the guys sat around like in Jaws where they sat around <laughs> the table going, you see this one here, this one, this dolphin tooth there right there. <laughs> and then I had uh, another dolphin uh, smack me in the face with this fluke. He was in a mud flat and the whole place was about two feet deep the whole bottom was covered with razor clams now i don't know if you guys are familiar with razor clams, yeah, yeah. but Ooh, very very yeah. sharp and so we went in there to rescue him he didn't know what our intention was he was he was pretty sure that we were going to try to kill it so he he ran away from us and stuff so one time we actually got him to where he was sort of blocked in by the airboats we were using and sure enough even though there was only like a foot and a half of water underneath and i was getting into my catching position he just let loose uh i, I was afraid he was going to hurt himself and he smacked me in the face and i lost my front tooth so hmm. oh wow he still dug underneath through the razor clams through the mud he dug underneath the airboat which if you think of the draft of the airboat was probably maybe six inches so wow he really just obviously didn't want to get caught yeah three hours later though i actually have a picture of it i actually I sat in the water with him and sort of just <laughs> i was kind of like begging him to just like let us let us rescue him and sure enough yeah we eventually did he was a 500 pound if you see the picture of me laying with it when i was protecting him on the boat he's he's gigantic he's a 500 pound dog mm. just so we would not have rescued him had he not either been exhausted or some people might say he might he just let us do it yeah oh what's that jaw like in terms of again compared to a shark in terms of like pressure of bite and so on i've never done a pressure test on it i do know that when they want to warn off another creature they will do what's called a jaw pop and they slam their jaws together and it makes a really, really loud sound. And that can be heard really well underwater because it's a low-frequency sound and it travels. It's significant. They'll definitely wake you up. Wow. When when they do that, that's, that's like I said, it's either a sign of aggression or their way of saying, back off. Sure. Unfortunately, I've had my hand in the, in the mouth of a dolphin a number of times. I never felt an overwhelming amount of pressure. Dolphins and, and most cetaceans use what we use, a, a suction feeding method. They use their tongue to fill up the inside of their mouth. And then when they, when they snap their jaw open and they drop their tongue down to the floor of their of their lower jaw, it'll actually create a suction that will pull in whatever's in front of them, like squid or something. Like yeah, that. sure. Um, so they use, they really just use their teeth to to grasp the prey. I don't think there's I don't think they're really grabbing on and needing to hold tight. But in terms of like the 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 sort of sheer power, I mean, anybody who's even held a normal sized fish before knows how powerful a fish moving around can be to hold. Mm -hmm. Dolphins must surely be extremely powerful i've never been around an organism that's pound for pound strong and it amazes me when you see and i hate to bring up a horrible subject but you see these dolphin drives yep. where you have these guys who are jumping in the water and grabbing the dolphins 
it's almost as if, and again, this is completely unscientific. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if they're they're going out of their way not to hurt the people because they could. They could really do a lot of damage if they wanted to. Oh, yeah. yeah. But their their impetus is to escape. It's not to cause harm. I've been one of those viewers who have sat back and watched the footage of these hunts and I'm like, why isn't this animal fighting back? Why isn't he taking out this jerk? It blows your mind. As a human, I guess I'm viewing it through the eyes of a human, why the animal doesn't fight back harder. It's almost heartbreaking. It makes it even worse to view. I agree. It's like, it's like you know, we have a choice of fight or flight. Why is it they always choose flight and they never yeah. use fight, you know? Yeah. And I and honestly, I, I can't be 100% certain. I think part of it is they can't get themselves into a mess that they can't get out of. Now, mm-hmm. they certainly know that they're air breathers, which is one of the reasons why I think it would be hard to see them voluntarily put their heads underwater and keep their heads underwater for an extended circumstances if they didn't know what to, if they didn't know where they were going. That's one of our um, hypotheses is one of the reasons they don't jump over the net mm-hmm. is because they can't be certain what's on the other side of that. Right. Because they can see it and they can detect it, but they don't know if it's safe to jump over um, yeah, it is quite a heartbreaking view. You know, there was a very well-known documentary about the cove, mm-hmm. the obviously culling all the dolphins, which is horrendous to watch. Right. Again, just going back to sort of like the media portrayal and how it's viewed, I've I've never met anyone who's ever seen that kind of footage of whichever countries are doing that. Whether I think there's one in Japan, there's certainly some in Europe. You know, where you've got this entire bay, this entire cove, just just red yeah blood red and i've never met anybody who hasn't sort of turned away in disgust and said you know it's absolutely horrendous yeah yeah if you showed the same thing happening with a bunch of great whites or a hammerhead i don't you just you don't get the same reaction exactly you know look at the finning you can put the stats and say okay there's a couple of coves that are doing it once a year and calling this many dolphins but look how many sharks are getting cut off of the fins and and still you don't get the same kind of public outcry the same reaction comparison to sharks i mean the, the amount of marine mammals that are being taken every year is a drop in the bucket obviously mm. mm-hmm. but it's still bad enough to earn themselves a lot more support groups than there are for sharks which are being killed you know 52 to 150 million a year mm-hmm. but I think it also has to do with where it takes place because they're not killing the dolphins out in 2000 feet water. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like, that's like, you know, a hundred miles offshore. Yeah. yeah. They're doing it right next to shore. So we can get that footage mm-hmm. as well. And so it makes it a little, a little more heartbreaking. And I'm sure that we have to add in the fact there that if we could hear a shark cry the way a dolphin cries, yeah. Oh, yeah. then yeah. It probably also be a little bit different. If we could find a way to, to, to humanize sharks. Yeah. Like, like we've all been trying to do for years. I think that that would go a long way, but it's really, really hard to do. I used to say if uh, if they were furry or maybe if they had that smile the dolphin has, you, people would have a whole different view. Unfortunately, they're not fluffy. <laughs> I do still personally believe that for all the petitions and all the awareness that you can do, which is all extremely vital, the only thing that would massively turn that corner for shark conservation in the same way that if you say, save the whales, save the dolphins, people would be like, hell yeah. Yeah. Save the sharks. Huh? What, really? Is the portrayal, is how they're seen. Yeah. I think it's the only way it can it, it, you can really kind of turn that corner. Everything else is strides in the right direction for sure. But you're never going to get Joe Public looking at a shark with blood in the water and thinking, poor shark. It just doesn't happen. Let me turn the tables on it and ask you guys a question. Mm. Do you think that there was an impact uh, on how people perceive sharks from the three sharks that, that started in Finding Nemo? For children, not so much adults, but for children, it's a nice um, start off. 
kind of like, you know, Flipper was for me as a child. So it's kind of nice to see him in a little bit of a more positive light. My kids were a little bit older when Finding Nemo came out. So I only caught the tales and like little clips of it. But Pardon the pun. but I it was very popular with children. Um, they loved the shark. Y- you know what I mean? So it was somewhat positive for some children. But I've seen a little bit with adults that the whole thing where he's it's I mean, what was it? The whole thing was like it was a it was like a support group, wasn't it? The, mm-hmm. the not to eat right. not yes. to eat them and so on. And putting that level of humor <laughs> on it, I think certainly did some good. Translating that to suddenly them being next to one on a boat in the water, I think he's still a million miles away because they still think, oh, it's still going to get me. Because the portrayal was still, it was humorous. See how they did it, but it was still at the end. What happens at the end of that scene? The, the great white goes ballistic and starts, you know, yeah. chasing chasing after yeah. him, turning into the ravenous monster again, you know? Yeah. I was just going to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up. But there were still children that adored him. Children are are, are probably our own market penetration as far as exactly. like humanizing But it's like yeah. we talked about on the on the last episode, the Jaws episode, about how that can be used. It's like my my boy got into nature and animals and marine life particularly because he was obsessed with the giant squid that was in Finding Dory. He'd not seen Finding Nemo at this point. He'd seen Finding Dory. And, and, and again, in that film, it's portrayed as this squid monster that's attacking. That Something about that absolutely sparked his, his imagination about I want to know more about squids and octopus. And now that he's obsessed with them, um, we'll have yeah. to get him on this podcast one day if he'd ever talk yes, because he's uh, that would be great. <laughs> he is obsessed. Um, but, you know, that all came from the big bad giant squid. And that sparked something that he went on and learned more. That's funny because I'd, I'd love to do that because I, I was obsessed with the giant squid for, for many years. I wouldn't say it was. It was near an obsession as it was with sharks. I did whatever I could to study them. And especially after I did necropsies on three large sperm whales, well, two large sperm whales and a baby sperm whale. I got to admit, I'd liked giant squid before, but unfortunately, again, for the listeners, I apologize for bringing this up. But when I got into that stomach and I found all the squid beaks, it just made it real. It just really made it real. Yeah. So I've, I've even got some still. I still have some of the squid beaks that we found in the stomach. When you, when you can hold that baseball-sized beak in your hand, and you realize how big those things must be. It's, it's pretty amazing. We don't have a media portrayal of giant squids, really. Maybe other than the old seafaring, you know, kraken type thing, you know. 20,000 leagues under the sea kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the leviathans or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's generally tends to be negative. I think even Disney would have a hard time making a lovable character out of a giant squid. But <laughs> This is where I think and hope that children are different because they're going to see it not in the same light that we're seeing it. You know, you've got the kraken in, in Pirates of the Caribbean and some kids will look at that and think, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, again, want to learn more about octopuses and sea creatures in general as opposed to like the big bad monster portrayal same with sharks i do i do hold hope that the you know the younger generation are going to see see sharks differently but just to kind of steer back around to what we were originally talking about this relationship between sharks and dolphins it does seem like there's a few sort of mistruths out there that maybe people should be more aware of i've learned a, a ton of stuff today i didn't know So you also know the big question that everybody asks. It's like, you know, orca versus great white. How's it going to work? I think it's pretty definitive now that we have 
evidence within the last five years of who's winning that battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But for those people who are on the shark side and who think that if it was one shark versus one orca, uh, I have to admit, I still think that the white shark, if they're comparable size, you're still going to have to give it to the orca. So I'm going to offend a lot of people by saying that, but it's pretty definitive because pretty much the, the shark would have to sneak up on the orca, and I just don't know if that's even possible. But the, the whole thing, I mean, I know we are on a shark group, uh, but even when you see the orca versus shark and you get people with like team shark, as it were, and we must protect them and it's terrible, these orcas. I, I'm just looking at that and saying, well, this is nature. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not for us to intervene. And while you may be attracted towards an animal and think that it's really sad that some sharks are going, the numbers are down, that is true. But it's also, that is nature. This is not mankind's pollution affecting it. This is one species against another species. And that's nature. Somebody's going to win. That's a mouse versus a cat in your backyard, you know. We even had a uh, one of our members bring that up and said, like, is it you know, is it is it okay to still feel sad for the seals that are being eaten by the white sharks? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So shout out to Sean Marie McDonald. And I've always been the same kind of empathetic person, which is you know, when you see the the orcas take the the seals out to be on the waves and they start throwing them up in the air and stuff, it's kind of hard not to you know yeah. feel sort of empathy for that and a little bit of horror towards the predator. But again, if they didn't have that, they didn't have that seal, they would die. So I mean, that's, that's the basic biological structure of, of getting what you can while you can and for the cheapest biological price, really, is what it is. But you get it when you're out on a shark boat and you see the, you know, everyone's watching the one seal that's straight away from the, the pod or the bob, as it's sometimes known. And you want, that, you want that shark to come out and eat that seal. But yeah, it's still tough to do, but it's nature. Those it's, eyes, those eyes suck me in every time. Yeah, but you're looking at it like it's a puppy again. Eyes. Have you seen those teeth? Have you seen I those know, seals? I know, but teeth? that's what makes me human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the difference you still see the harp seal laying out on the ice flow the, 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 oh the, gosh the, yes little white puffball of a of fur yes. yeah but i've seen one of those cape fur seals with its mouth open with a whole row of teeth and it's exactly the same as looking at a dolphin with its mouth open you know we want to look at it in that way but we don't and again i think this is where just that that image of of the dolphin and that's what we've that's what we've made it it's the good guy it's the cute smiley cuddly clicky flipper thing yeah well if it's if it makes anybody feel better as far as I know, I don't think any predator is much more than 30% effective, even at the best. So think about it this way. If you're on the side of the prey, two of them are getting away for everyone that gets eaten. That's that's sort of like a little silver lining on your cloud. That makes us all feel much better. Thank you, Drew. It's like therapy time. <laughs> Can I ask you then, just in the in the world of dolphins, before we sort of wrap up today, what, what are the areas that are being studied in the sort of dolphin world at the moment? Where is the focus on studying dolphins? It's about anything you can think of. I mean, my personal study that I had published was I was looking at dolphin tracheas and I was actually comparing marine mammal tracheas to a white-tailed deer tracheas because I wanted to compare marine mammals to terrestrial mammals. And I was looking at a specific structure called elastin. And basically elastin is the same thing all of us have in our skin. It's kind of like the elastic you have in your sock. It's kind of like what allows you to pinch your arm and the skin goes back into place. There's an abundance of it, a massive abundance of it in their tracheas because when marine mammals are diving, you get a lot of water pressure on that one air-filled spot in their body, and that's pretty much the only air-filled spot in their body. They have to find a way for when, after they come up to the surface for that tissue to rebound into its normal conformation. As far as what they study with marine mammals, they, I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as wide 
ranging as you can possibly think. It can get very, very technical. Like uh, the professor I had who got me into it, he's actually very well known in the uh, marine mammal science uh, area. His name is uh, Dr. Andreas Foreman, fantastic scientist. He was doing a lot of diving studies. And again, like I said, you, you would think by now we have all the diving information we need. Well, funnily enough, I while we've been talking, I've obviously just Googled a bit of info to see what's out there. And you're telling me, and I 100% trust what you're saying, plenty of sites. As soon as you do, you know, you Google how much time can a dolphin hold the best for, people stating it as fact. Oh yeah, it's 10 minutes, it's 7 minutes, it's 15 minutes, it's 4 to 5 minutes. Let me put it this way. There's smaller cousins to the sperm whale, uh, known as the pygmy sperm whale or the dwarf sperm whale. And I was actually doing some research on these as well. What was funny is we know almost nothing about them. We, kn we know that we've seen them at the surface, but nobody, very few people even have video footage of them. And these things have been around forever. And you would think by now we pretty much... I think we probably have as much footage on the giant squid as we do these pygmy and, and, and dwarf sperm whales. Right. Whole large, large species, very, very large species of, of dolphins, another subset before you get to the, to the great whales. And again, there's dozens of species out there, but we know so little of them except for when they're at the surface. So, Drew, are you saying megalodons could be out there? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Come on, you're feeding into it now. Uh, I, I know you can't see the you can't see the expression on my face when I see it. Like, <laughs> but there's so much of the ocean we've not seen it. Technically, I cannot exclude to a 100 percent degree <laughs> that there might be one somewhere. I can exclude to a degree that anyone's ever seen one, and then and I don't think you're going to find them down in the deepest parts of the ocean because that was based on a work of fiction. Do you know what? Let's not go there. Let's just not even go there. <laughs> Just, I shouldn't have even mentioned it, should I? I am curious, though, because, again, you Google around, and if you want to know things about sharks and dolphins, unfortunately, what's one of the first sites that pops up when you Google that? It's SeaWorld. SeaWorld telling yeah. you 10 reasons why sharks are afraid of dolphins, blah, blah, blah. If somebody does want to, because it sounds like, myself included, there's a lot of education to be done around dolphins. If any of our members are listening and want to go and learn more about dolphins, where would you, you say that they should go? To be honest, I, for me, I'm a, I'm a big fan because I, I started looking into it as, as a young kid. Uh, my, my biggest things were you're going to find less bias in what it's, what's known as the primary literature, the actual scientific papers. And I know what people think. It's, it's, it's a very dry read. It's really, really you know frustrating, especially if you don't know the terms and stuff. Yeah. But I got to be honest with you, you're never going to learn them if you don't give them a try. Don't be and don't be worried about the scientific terms. Don't look at the materials and methods unless you're interested in that. Mm -hmm. But if you just read the abstracts and read the, the conclusions and the results and the discussion, you should be fine and you'll get the gist of it. And the more you read it, the more you'll pick up. I think we really need to stop being flummoxed or, or intimidated by the literature because you'd be surprised at everything that you can learn from a simple paper. So for me, I would say Google Scholar is probably the best place to go. Anything that you, you've heard of and, and trust, there's going to be a little bit of bias there. Sure. My local aquarium, they still say, you know, uh, dolphins can only live for 25 years. And let me tell you, the dolphin that was in Jaws 3 in Kai, I actually spent time with that dolphin. Yes, you've mentioned this before. He died in 2017. And that movie was filmed in 1983. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I always try to tell people. It's like, don't don't take anything that's spoon-fed. Look it up for yourself or read it for yourself. That's the thing with the scientific papers is, like you say, read the abstract, read the conclusion, which is something I always do because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. How can it be more accessible to 
you know, Joe Public who doesn't want to go and do that. But I think you've just answered my own question is, well, you're never going to learn it unless you actually do go and do it. I, I worry about the misrepresentation of lots of creatures, not just sharks. It's just a little bit more of a passion for why sharks are misrepresented. But it does seem like dolphins are, are potentially very misrepresented as well. Oh, yeah. One of the reasons I, I bring that up, because you can't even look at scientific papers as being infallible, because somebody will write a paper and then a group of other scientists will get will get together and actually form a paper to refute that paper. Sure. There's checks and balances even in science. Mm-hmm. Even have to monitor ourselves. And that's why I, I tend to appreciate the peer-reviewed information. While we're in this format of a podcast, Drew, your responses to people's questions on our group are always extremely thoughtful, extremely reasoned. Yes extremely educated but also very objective you call it sitting on the fence i call it not subscribing to social media traits of it has to be black and white you you seem to seek the truth and you answer questions for our members in a far more eloquent way than i ever could uh melissa you do the same that's not to exclude any of other admins oh no no drew's at a whole different level i compliment drew all the time this is why people crave your input drew and i enjoy drew as much as our members enjoy drew you're probably blushing or you're cringing or but it has to be said drew you are exceptional in the the depth and the quality of the information that you give to members you are all right well i i appreciate that and i will certainly thank you guys for the compliments i will say this though when it comes to somebody like me compliments are, are like water on a duck's back it won't mm-hmm. stick it won't stick so don't be offended if i, I don't, uh, <laughs> not, that to heart. not at all but i feel the same way and i and i really don't like when and melissa i don't mean to to be negative oh no no but i don't like the fact that you're considering us on different levels we know this stuff on a different capacity your knowledge of especially u.s-based research uh and stuff like this is well beyond mine so you you are so far beyond that thank you drew and ricardo your experience and your filmmaking is just, I mean, I don't mean to make this a big love-in session, but um, <laughs> you guys bring so much to the table and I'm so envious of, of the treats that you guys have got. You will be keen to know I absolutely want to do a whole show with Melissa and Melissa's story and input, so we'll all be tuning into that at some point for sure. But I think there's a, there is a reason why on some posts and from some members you will see someone going, tag Drew, tag Drew. Drew, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Drew, what's your thoughts? Because you just take the time to balance your, you know, your responses. I appreciate that. I, I also apologize to, to the members. I, I took some time off away from social media for me. And unfortunately, it was shark related. It had to deal with, with uh, the shark situation down in Australia. Mm-hmm. Sure. It got very, very toxic. Everybody thought that they were right and nobody could come to the table and, and debate with an open mind. That's one thing I really hope our members take to heart is the fact that we can talk about these things without hating each other. Yep. Indeed. And if you do hate each other on the group, then you get banned. Yep. We don't tolerate that. But I'm back. Nice to have you back. It is exceptional to have you back. I love being around you guys again, so I'm glad to be back. And if anybody does have any questions, don't be afraid to ask. I love answering questions. Super. And you're awesome at it. Okay, well, we are out of time. We're going to stop the love fest now. <laughs> I hope you've got something out of today's topic. I've certainly learned tons today. If you are not a member of the White Shark Interest Group, please, as I said before, head over to Facebook and do search the White Shark Interest Group. You will find us. We have two sister groups as well, if you didn't know and you're not a member. We also have the Shark Shack, which is where we keep some of the lighter stuff, more of the sort of pictures, videos and the memes and the pictures of pajamas and tattoos and the likes. And we also have the White Shark Advocacy Group, which we we like to sort of push more for the more for the sort of like hardcore science and 
the debate. So please, if you're not a member, head over and search the White Shark Interest Group on Facebook. You can also find us on Instagram at White Shark underscore Interest Group, where as well as the pictures that we put up, we also like to put some knowledge and information. We just had a great post recently about Polaris breaches. And also we have our website, which is the White Shark Interest Group.com, where you'll find shortcuts to all the podcast episodes as well as a, a small library of, of select documents there. And of course, you may be listening to this on YouTube. You can find us on YouTube also. And we've got some plans. We will have some more video content coming towards YouTube soon. So with that said, I'd just like to once again, thank you, Melissa, for your time today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope you all have a great week. And thank you to the mighty Drew for your input today. Glad to be here and, and hoping to connect with the, uh, the members. If you have any questions, don't be afraid. Don't feel intimidated. Just ask us. And if I don't know the answer, I'll find out for you. There's a gem of an invitation. So with that said, thank you very much for listening today, guys. And we will see you on the next episode.